Hi, everyone, and welcome to this new episode of the Everything Accordion podcast. Before we dive into this new episode, I would like to draw your attention to the new link tree I created for the podcast. If you click on the link in the description of this episode, you will find a whole series of different links. Now you can send in a voice message, which I will later include in the podcast if you'd like me to, or as a comment or to reach out with suggestions and ideas. Now you can also join the Discord community directly from Linktree. You can support the podcast. You can find all the links for the podcast on Spotify, on Apple Podcasts, on Anchor FM, and there's also a section on listener requests. In exchange for a donation to the podcast, you will either get a shout out on the podcast, you might have your event or music promoted on the podcast, you might get choose to get the topic of an episode or the guest of the episode. You could also get early access to exclusive content, live streams, tickets, video access, and much more. And for the highest donation, you will get an exclusive private concert of a host, which is for me, Gennady Rotari. Here, terms and conditions apply. So head on to the description of the episode and click on Linktree slash Everything Accordion Podcast. Now, let's go to the episode. Welcome to another episode of the Everything Accordion podcast. Today, I'm super excited to have another guest from Germany this time, who is an incredible performer. He has uh, participated in concerts and in festivals all over the world as a soloist in chamber music ensembles, appeared as a guest with orchestras, premiered over 150 works most of them dedicated to him, more than 40 CDs, and one of them was my reference CD when I was studying the Goldberg Variations when I was in Helsinki in 2014. He's also a professor of accordion and chamber music in Würzburg, so without further ado, welcome Stefan Husong on the podcast. Thank you very much. Hello. It is a great, great pleasure to have you on the podcast and to kick this conversation off I wanted to ask you, how did you come by the accordion? What was the first encounter with the instrument? Oh, well, uh, my father, actually, uh, when I was a child, um, he fulfilled himself a dream which he couldn't before because of the war. And he started to learn accordion when he was about 30. So it was all the day around when he had time to practice. And it was part of my growing up. Hmm. Okay, so that was kind of your first, uh, what was the pool of you uh, wanting to learn the instrument? Because many times in families you see, for example, a sibling or a parent being a professional musician, and it's not like children really want to follow in their parents' footsteps many times. Like, what was that pool of the instrument for you? <laughs> you just mentioned it already. It was not that I wanted to learn it. There was no much choice. Okay. Because, uh, <laughs> my, my father just uh, wanted his two sons to learn musical instruments. So I picked the accordion and my brother picked the guitar. And that's how it worked. Did you also play together sometimes? Yes, we uh, had to play because that was his dream. His two sons and himself playing together whenever there was time. So 
yeah, mm -hmm. played a lot together. What were, like, how would you describe being an accordionist in, in the 70s and the 80s? Because I am pretty sure it's not like today where you have a large variety of choices where to go and study, where to go and perfect yourself and learn the instrument to become actually a professional musician. Was there a role model of a professional accordionist at the time? Yeah, actually, um, as you say, uh, uh, there, there was not much uh, choice to, to study or even find a profession uh, as an accordionist, but uh, one of my how can I say, yeah, role model situation was a concert of Hugo Not. Mm -hmm. uh, he was playing in my hometown close to Saarbrücken, uh, giving a concert there. And I went there and heard for the first time, how can I say, concert music, real, really concert music for the accordion. He played a lot of Scarlatti sonatas and he played some duos with percussion, Lundquist, Duell, etc. And that was very impressive to me and made me thinking that it is a real instrument and maybe can be even studied. Mm -hmm. Yeah, in a way I can relate to that, even though like I, I was living in a, you know, I grew up and was born and grew up in a small country, Eastern European country, Moldova, where the only way you could succeed in a professional career as an accordionist or even as a musician was either folk music or, you know, by teaching a little bit and then change, doing a, a different career path. So, and for some reason, seeing folk, the folk music scene, um, nothing against it. I adore folk music, listening to it, but it's just not where my head and my heart led. So when I started hearing the different competitions, the more modern and classical and transcriptions and Bach and Scarlatti, I became more attracted to the instrument so I can completely relate to that. And reading your bio, then you later obviously went to study with Hugo Not in Trossingen. Of course, I had to, <laughs> because that was, <laughs> that was my idol <laughs> on, with this mm -hmm. instrument. And uh, yeah, I was lucky to do that. Mm -hmm. But then you also studied in Canada, I read on your bio, and Japan, which is really not, uh, let's call it it's a bit of unconventional choice for studying the instrument even nowadays i think could you talk a little bit about this uh you wanting to you going to canada to study and then to japan like what was the the idea the thought the plan behind that if there mm -hmm. was one mm -hmm. well canada um happened because um during my studies with hukunot uh he had invited joe Macharolo from Toronto University and Conservatory. And <laughs> he came for, um, yeah, nowadays you call it master course, a course and a concert. And he was so different from Hugo Nod, I would say the opposite, but a fantastic musician, but totally, as I say, different in any mm -hmm. kind. And uh, I thought uh, it would be important also um, somebody else who could give me different view and perspectives. And so I went with a some scholarships to the University of Toronto studying with Joe. And it was a very good idea to have done that, especially since for me, it was the first time to get in a real big town for longer than just a day or two. 
as mm -hmm. you know, Trussingen is really small, but Toronto is a little bit bigger. That was the first <laughs> thing. And uh, Japan, <laughs> Japan was uh, another thing. I was at the end of my studies and um, had shortly before that um, met Toshio Hosokawa. Mm -hmm. And of course, uh, had played his piece, Melodia, his first solo piece for recording. And for the first time, I felt that our history, the instrument's history, has not started uh, in some, I don't know, bars, clubs, or tango orchestras, or wherever, but much, much earlier uh, in Asia with the instrument sheng or shou, however you want to call it, uh, in different Asian languages. So I wanted to find out about that, that instrument especially. And so I went to Japan to study their traditional Japanese music uh, in Tokyo with a major in Shou, Japanese mm -hmm. version of the Shang. And mm -hmm. I didn't study accordion there, just as I say, traditional music okay. and Shou. Hmm? Wow, now that's quite an interesting choice. Could you, for the listeners who don't really know what a Shou and a Shang is, could you briefly say a couple of words about this instrument? Mm -hmm. It's an, a very, very old instrument um, coming actually from China. They are called sheng. It is a so-called mouth organ. Uh, looks mm, difficult to describe. It is a small bowl. In this bowl, uh, you put tubes, small tubes of bamboo, which have at the end a, a copper reed, which is very similar to the reeds in the accordion and the sound is also quite close to what you mm -hmm. would recollect an accordion sound and so it's a direct ancestor of our accordion and as um, <laughs> Hosokawa always said uh, Sho is the grandmother of the accordion. <laughs> It's a very nice image, and uh, I will put a link for the listeners in the description of the episode, so you can actually go and see the instrument. I also heard the instrument in some videos, and it's really fascinating the way it it, it actually does. Well, put it let's put it in another way. The accordion actually does resemble the sound of a shaw or a shank, so mm -hmm. it's really. Um, very close as a relative. So what year was it that you came back from Japan to Europe? Oh, I think 1988 I came back. Hmm. Yeah. And you're also one of the winners of this prestigious Gaudiamus competition, one of the two accordionists that I know of who won this competition. And it was, I think, very surprising at the time, perhaps for you know, for the listeners and also for the jury members to actually hear an accordion play only contemporary music in this kind of competition. What sort of uh, inspired you to actually take part? Was it the will to show in a way what the instrument was able to do? Or did it just happen by itself? <laughs> no, uh, it was uh, like that. As you know, Hugo Nord uh, is not a big fan of competitions. So if you want to, during his studies, during my studies with him, uh, uh, not only me, also the other students, you had to search a little bit because he was not so actively giving you ideas that you should go to a competition, however. Mm -hmm. And I found this by accident, 
I don't know. Oh, no, I remember. Uh, they were very close to trusting us. Donau Eschingen. They are the famous mm -hmm. Donau Eschingen New Music uh, Festival every year. And I went there every year. And there I found a brochure uh, about the Gaudiamus competition. And reading it carefully, I realized, well, uh, they take any instrument. Why not going there? And so I applied and went there and did win. And I think I was the first accordion player there, mm -hmm. maybe. See, for sure, the first accordion player who did win the competition. Yeah, but I think you also were the first one. So that was kind of, uh, you know, a very uh, like when it's stingy topic, I think, in our world of the accordion, the, the bigger world of the accordion, the competitions, right? Because being raised as a musician in Eastern Europe, even now you see on the posters everywhere, for example, in Russia or Ukraine or Belarus, written the name, the instrument, and then winner of this and this and that competition. This is something which I don't see that often in Austria, Germany, or France, in Italy a little bit more. But what, what do you think of the competitions? What is your take coming from someone who as you said, with Hugo Not, he was not someone who was pushing you because he was not a fan of competitions. And, you know, after doing a couple of them, neither am I, but you researched the competition and you decided to participate in one. What is your take on the whole this idea of competition? Well, honestly, you can measure music. That's a very simple thing. It's not sports. Uh, on the other hand, let's be realistic in the music world, uh, not only accordion music, world, but the international music world, uh, having the chance to present yourself at a big event like Elizabeth's competition, Tchaikovsky competition, etc., etc., is a, a unique and very fruitful uh, possibility, especially if you are one of the winners. And in addition for uh, students, it can be a very big motivation to develop a program, to uh, really work even harder and try to yeah, take part in something like that. And as you, or as I mentioned, and you again, uh, my former teacher Hugo Nord was never a big fan of this, and which is of course um, his private thing. But I personally think as a teacher, I should not keep students away to go to competitions if they want to and if I think that they are able to go to because um, it's not my job to um, you know um, mm -hmm. make it not possible for them it's, it can be a very good chance it can be also something which puts them back when they take it too seriously in case they do not win or do not get any prize yeah, I think this is the way to, yeah, as you said, this is not your job to discourage them, but it's also important for them to kind of understand what they are going to that competition for. So maybe trying out new new things or a new program or... Yes, and um, uh, if I may add this, um, mm -hmm. I think our, how can I say, our job is to make it possible that the competitions which are there for students are as, how can I say, as professional, mm -hmm. as fair, and as um, well organized as possible. This is the only thing what we can do, and maybe you know that, uh, 
I'm since a few years now the uh, jury president of the Klingenthal competition. Mm -hmm. And uh, I was I was thinking very long if I should do that um, when I was asked. But then I thought, well, I can do maybe something. I can make it better. I can make it more clear, more fair, mm -hmm. more up to date, more mm -hmm. interesting. Uh, and that's that's a chance. Why not taking the chance and trying? If the organization wants to work with me on that path, why mm -hmm. not trying to do that? True. I couldn't agree more. Also, because Klingenthal actually is one of those places that the quality and also if you look at the programs every year, there's a test piece or a set list of test pieces, which basically keeps the level upwards and it doesn't allow it to drop below a certain point because it's impossible. It's either you manage to do that or to play that or you cannot really participate in that. And yeah, it's important. And I think it's also really great as a competition to bring together many professionals and professors and, you know, professional musicians from around the world who maybe listen to you, maybe give you feedback. And that's super important for growing as a, as a student and as a musician as well. Yeah, I agree totally. Unfortunately, we have painfully noticed that how important it is during the last two years when there was no chance to do real meetings and to really get together due to that COVID-19 thing. Mm -hmm. How was the last year's competition? Was it done online? I'm sorry, I wasn't following it that closely. Ah, yeah. <laughs> uh, yeah, that was a big discussion. And we finally, the organization um, office and me, decided to get out of a real competition. Um, and the idea was that uh, the uh, people who took part send a video of mm -hmm. all three rounds. And the jury is being invited to Klingenthal. And in real time, they start on the day of the competition to mm -hmm. watch together the videos and listen together to the videos with a very professional audio equipment. And at the same, same time, you could see it uh, as a live streaming, you could see the jury, you could mm -hmm. also see and listen to the competitors. So it was a competition almost like before, but instead of competitors were just the videos of the competitors, but everything else was exactly the same way. So there was no, um, you know, private listening mm -hmm. and uh, seeing these videos of each jury member all over the world, but every um, jury member had to come had to start in the morning after the tests, of course, and start <laughs> to sit together and and watch from nine o'clock on all these videos in real time and only once, and of course the whole video. And then we judged like before, we, we mm -hmm. gave the points and, and got collected. And they were announced in the like like a normal competition. Yeah, so it was basically a sort of a hybrid thing where you had basically only the virtual performances. Other than that, everybody was sitting and working and being tra as transparent as possible because if you you're filming the judging process and seeing people you know being there then yeah because yeah i think with the online last year there were some 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 pretty scammy things with competitions happening around not the accordion world but also i've heard about violin competitions where you've sent the video and then you saw that you know on your 
private link where it was only like 50 seconds maybe or one minute of people listening to it and then gave you the the points so that's you know that's not a fair way of doing a competition in that kind of situation but i think you found a really great solution to that yeah it, uh, you have to be as fair as possible in such a situation and it was what you just mentioned that was by the way a student of mine uh, oh who, yeah uh, true arsenio yeah. arsenio who experienced this uh, incredible thing having even paid uh, money which he never got back um yeah i'm not saying that uh, every competition online competition was like that last year but i'm sure here and there there were these things happening and also i mean um even if you try to be as how can i say as fair as possible if you are not watching together listening together as a jury and you don't even know what time everybody is watching and listening um i think it's very hard to be really close and fair to a normal competition oh yeah no absolutely i think that's also because it's a, it's a completely different situation right well it's either you sit there in that situation where you need to do the work and listen and because there's a shared common activity and experience and energy in the room if i'm sitting at home judging a competition watching the videos you know on my laptop whenever i want whether it's two o'clock in the morning and i'm not really feeling like listening to I don't know, Lindbergh or whatever, perhaps it's not the <laughs> exactly. best, it's not the best thing. <laughs> <laughs> exactly. <laughs> Great. So moving on from this, uh, I wanted to ask you about your collaborations with composers, because you collaborated with really many composers. And uh, among these, there's Adriana Hulski, uh, Sofia Gubaidulina, uh, Keiko Harada, and many, 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 many more. So what I wanted to ask you is how, how did you start, in a way, collaborating with composers? Did you approach them? Did they approach you? How, how, did, how did it all start back in the day? Um, it started, again, with that Dono and really festival where I went every year um, and listened to all these first performances in smaller groups, bigger groups, orchestras, etc. And um, when I heard a piece by somebody who I really liked and the piece was really impressive, I tried to get in contact with the composer. And uh, for instance, Adriana Hölzky, it was like that. Um, she had a big double concerto for orchestra, flute and violin. And I was mm -hmm. so impressed. I still was a student. I remember I was so impressed by that piece. So I um, tried to contact her. And so we got in contact. And that's how the collaboration started. Of course, nowadays, uh, and the last years, it's also very often happening the other way around that composers contact me also. Mm -hmm. But at the beginning, it worked really like that. And I was lucky at that time when I started that there was a program of Baden-Württemberg State which was called performer composer where you could apply to get commissions because that's the point I mean you mm -hmm. cannot just go to a really prestigious composer and say hi I like your music please write something for me you also have to sort of offer some money uh, a fee yeah. and possibly also a, a, a 
possibility to perform it at a, at a good festival. So there was this program um, and you could apply if you would live in Baden-Württemberg state and if they agreed, so you got the money and could use that for these uh, new pieces. Mm -hmm. Does this program still, is this program no. still alive? No, <laughs> no. it's it, okay. No, unfortunately <laughs> not, because uh, the more people <laughs> who found out, uh, I think uh, at the end there were so many um, applications that they mm. uh, said, uh, I'm sorry, we don't have that much money. And the government changed during that time from a mm -hmm. conservative government to social government. And they needed money, so they cut this off. Mm -hmm. Yeah, which is a real pity because, you know, there are some, so many, especially nowadays, so many great composers, also perhaps, you know, not very well known, but really great. And when I would like to ask them to write a piece, you know, I, I would really love to pay them something, but I'm not in the condition to pay them a fee to write a new work. So this kind of uh, support from art organizations, from the government, from the land or, you know, from a region um, mm. is definitely very helpful in a way. So, um, yeah, of course, how would you encourage, you know, there many musicians with whom I talked and many would like to approach a composer, but for some reason they're either shy or maybe they think that the composer will not reply or will not be interested. Like, what would be your advice to put yourself in contact with a composer? Oh, <laughs> that's very different. It really depends on the, on the persons involved. But what I would suggest if you study still at your university or conservatory, get as early as possible with your composition classmates together with the teacher of the composition uh, class and collaborate. Um, out of these mm, contacts develop, I think, not often, but here and there develop very interesting future collaborations. And uh, if you pick the right composers there when they're still students, then uh, you might get really a fruitful um, uh, collaboration with them later on. And uh, it is not that you just, you know, go to find a phone number of somebody, but you know already some people and you have a network mm -hmm. and maybe they know somebody. And so it goes on like that. In case you wanna uh, really contact somebody which you haven't known before and maybe, maybe a big name, I think the best way is uh, with a festival. If you have contact to a festival of contemporary music or of any music, and if you have the chance to um, be part of this festival, try to make this your, how can I say, your entrance uh, to get in contact with a composer you want and suggest to the festival people you would like to have a piece by that person and perform during that festival. Yeah, that's great advice also, because if you're a student and the composition student is also a student, you both grow together in a way. And mm -hmm. it's also important to remember for the listeners who are still young and students, it's also very important to remember that, you know, out of the works which you will perform and commission, which will be new from students, not every single one will be a masterpiece. But it's normal that way. Why? Because composition takes time, takes skill takes also a lot of research to actually know what your language is or will be or you know what your interests are 
So it's absolutely crucial that you perform also, you know, maybe some works that you'll say, well, this was the first performance and perhaps the last one for me. But, you know, the, 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 the composer will hear it and say, okay, I need to work on this and this and this because it doesn't work. Exactly, I agree. And it's a training both ways. You as a performer also have to be trained how you show your instrument to composers, how explain your instrument and uh, vice versa. The composer has to understand how the very complicated instrument, the accordion is, how it works. So it's a good training for both sides. And as you say, not every piece will be a masterwork, but that's the, that's the situation with everything. Uh, <laughs> you also can ask a very big name and it might not be a masterpiece either. True. Absolutely true. So, uh, Stefan, uh, trial and error. Yeah, definitely. Yeah. And Stefan, is there some anecdote or memorable moment with, you know, one of the big names that you remember collaborating with? I remember you were talking about when, when I did a masterclass with you in Rome, I think it was 2012 or 13, something around those years. I remember somebody brought to you a piece by Sofia Gubaidulina. And you told an anecdote about uh, you doing a course where Sofia Gubaidulina was in a in a different class in the same building, and you would send all of the accordionists to her, and she would basically rearrange or make small changes based on the performer and on the instrument. Do you have any such uh, moment or anecdote with other composers with who you collaborated? Uh, yeah, I think just to, to um, make this clear, what you just mentioned, that was Salzburg, uh, Salzburger Festspieler, uh, who Baidolina was invited as a composer in residence. And I was also teaching there, right? And I sent <laughs> all students who played her music, which was basically mainly de profundis. And um, yeah, they came back, as you mentioned, with little changes because every time a student came with a certain accordion type, she adjusted things like sometimes uh, the octaves higher or lower because it sounded better for her and sometimes other things. And I think that is a good example um, that the written uh, score is of course extremely important and must be read very carefully. But it also uh, has still some space in there depending what kind of tool, what kind of instrument you're using. Other anecdotes. Oh, let me see. Yeah. <laughs> um, coming back to Adriana Hölzky, um, after I made this contact and um, I, she invited me to her home to um, show something on the instrument, to bring the instrument and we work a little mm -hmm. bit together. And <laughs> She opened the door. It was in Stuttgart. I think she was that I'm living in Stuttgart. She opened the door, and there were immediately very interesting sounds. Somebody else spoke with a funny voice, who I couldn't see, and there was this dog running around my legs like crazy and barking. Mm -hmm. And then I came in the room and I saw there was a beo. A beo is a kind of um, a bird which can mm -hmm. speak. Oh, okay. <laughs> <laughs> that Bill was talking and talking and trying to steal on her grand piano the uh, <laughs> the pencils and then she said, put it down, put it down, and the dog ran around. It was 
kind of really interesting atmosphere. <laughs> and then uh, in this atmosphere, I took my instrument out of the, the case. And by accident, I just uh, strive a little bit on a key. And she was so ready, immediately took a pencil and wrote that down, the note, which I had by accident. So um, <laughs> the, the, her way of uh, listening, she has, of course, perfect pitch listens to everything that was really amazing in the first contact and I had real respect when we started that being wow. able to listen to really everything and write it immediately down and uh, it was proved later um, uh, later on we had a rehearsal with a small ensemble and my trombone colleague Mike Swoboda had to play something and uh, it was a um, okay a quarter tone higher note and she said mm -hmm. No, it's not a quarter. It's already a third too high. <laughs> wow. It was really impressive if you have people like that in front of you. Wow. Yeah, no, it's, it's crazy. Also, as you say, in such a hectic environment, right? Just get the yeah. thing perfectly. <laughs> yeah, that was, that was a real anecdote. <laughs> <laughs> wow. And, you know, going on from this, I would like to move and talk a little bit about your CDs, your discography, because you are someone who recorded from Renaissance music to Bach, also being the first one, I think, to record the Goldberg Variations on, on the accordion. And you also play uh, tangos, chamber music, really a huge and impressive range of repertoire. And before we dive into that, I would like to ask you maybe for the accordionist that might be interested in your instrument. What I like about what you said uh, before is I think we often forget that the accordion is a tool, an instrument with which we create the sound and which helps us to bring out the um, physical, visual and sound image of a work and you have a honor gola which has a system if i'm not wrong is it uh, the bassetti system uh if you could briefly talk a little bit about that yeah okay the instrument um i have three instruments and uh two of them are honor golas from the early 60s and another one is a delicia from czechoslovakia um, i'm using these golas because um, the sound is just it's really satisfying me. Also the mechanical things, but the sound is, is unsurpassed in my opinion. And uh, it's an old system. I have a Stradella system and in front of that three rows, uh, single notes in a, in a C system. And on the right side, I play keyboard. Mm -hmm. So, yeah, for those wondering, like, why, why do you have so many buttons on the left side? It's because you don't have a converter. You have exactly. both of them at exactly. the same time. <laughs> mm -hmm. Great. So uh, going back to your discography, you're, you're also someone who experimented with transcriptions a lot, like, for example, John Cage's who works, I think, which also won uh, the best record of the year award, if I'm not mistaken. Mm -hmm. What, in your opinion, was the motivation to kind of record all of his works? Was it because you wanted to have a recorded pace of your musicianship? Or did you feel that you needed to 
again, I, I don't like the word showing, but kind of to to make the world listen to how an accordion can sound through these recordings. <laughs> okay, no, I understand you. To make it a little bit polemic, um, uh, yeah, as you mentioned uh, and before, I see the instrument as a tool. I could also play cello or the piano or a flute or whatever. Um, it's not that I want to make the world believing accordion is the most beautiful instrument. I don't think that even. But it's a, it, it's a valuable instrument. And by accident or chance, that was the instrument I, I played best at that time. Um, the music um, itself, which I chose, was always something on the path of my musical life or development. Like the Gold Preparations, uh, it happened because one evening I watched this very strange pianist singing and conducting and sitting <laughs> on a funny chair <laughs> named Glenn Gould playing this on TV. And I was so impressed that uh, by this performance uh, that I bought the score and uh, tried to find out what he was doing there and thought, well, this could be played on the accordion. And then I listened for half a year every day to that recording of Gould, uh, analyzed and started to practice against the opinion of Hugo Nord at that time. Uh, he told me that's, you shouldn't do that. It's crazy. It's impossible. Mm. Uh, in the case okay. of Cage, it was, a, to make another uh, statement about that. In the case of Cage, it was like that. Um, I discovered his music for uh, violin and keyboard. He writes, he doesn't write piano or anything else. He writes keyboard, like six melodies. And he also wrote a cycle called 13 harmonies. And I thought that would be great if this would work or was still in of John Cage, having met him several times before. And so I, um, I phoned the <laughs> the violinist Irvin Arditi and said, listen, uh, this is my name, I'm playing accordion and uh, I would like to record these uh, pieces. Would you be interested? And he said, yes, let's do that. And so we organized a record company and recorded mm -hmm. it. And I remember, of course, we had to ask Cage. And so uh, the recording was in Germany and Cage, of course, was in New York. And so we phoned him. And when Irvin uh, said, hey, John, you know, uh, is it okay that we record this? And Kate answered, if you do it, it will be okay. So uh, that was my, my first encounter with Kate's uh, music on the accordion. And later on, um, I looked through his works for piano or harp and organ and discovered a couple of pieces which seemed to be perfect for our instrument. So um, I learned them and yeah, played them often and recorded them. Mm -hmm. Yeah, I remember hearing your recording of Dream and in the landscape, uh, which I think I've listened to at least 20 times in a row because it, it, it really, the sound that the accordion gave to that piece was really in a state of this dreamland and was a trance-like state, which was really great. Like I never heard this. So then I wanted, after hearing you, I wanted also to, to try and play it. And it's not as simple as it seems because you really need to kind of choo <laughs> choose the, 
the, the, the sounds that you really want to kind of have there because on the piano it's much easier you press both pedals down and you play the notes and it sounds by itself exactly and uh, but the point of the accordion is um, to make it a little bit uh, more clear uh, cage writes mostly one line just one line uh, and says for instance in dream yeah and says um, keep sounds uh, beyond notation don't make any pause, make uh, no intermission, and uh, yeah, that's it. Mm -hmm. And you can do that perfectly on the accordion because you play the line on, I don't know, the right side or the left side, and you manually do a pedal on the other side, which of course is limited to your possibilities of how long you can keep the notes with your fingering. But so in that case, you have a perfect way to control what you want to pedal and what not. And uh, that makes it quite suitable for the accordion. And thank you for listening 20 times to Dream, my God. <laughs> <laughs> well, you know, I was, I was a student looking for really recordings of new works, which I didn't know. Well, they were new for me. Obviously, Dream is not a new work. But um, yeah, no. And where can listeners find all your discography and where can they buy your CDs? <laughs> That's an interesting question, a uh, question which, yeah, I asked myself a couple <laughs> of them. Of course, of course, you can buy the, some of them at the usual Amazon or whatever. Most of it, somebody put on Spotify. Many things are on YouTube, which I didn't post there <laughs> nowadays. Uh, yeah, sadly, the, the physical CD market, the physical CD is more or less dead of all the streaming and um i for instance uh, i recorded a couple of cds for denon in japan they're very hard to get nowadays because they uh, don't internationally sell anymore and mm -hmm. you if you go to to japan to tokyo or osaka in a normal record store you can still find them because the japanese love physical records and not only mm -hmm. streaming but otherwise, you really have to search and maybe pay some more money than usually mm -hmm. they would cost. Yeah, it's unfortunately nowadays so that um, yeah. the physical CDs disappear. True. And it's also very difficult to find something to listen them on because all of the new laptops don't really have a CD drive. So exactly, exactly. It's, it's, that's a real downgrade. <laughs> true, but the, the prices went up. You, like that's in my head, but somehow it doesn't really correlate with one another. But you know, that's only my thing. I've listened to your recent recording that you did last year by uh, Antonio Soler's uh, keyboard sonatas, made for Paladino music. And would you like to a little bit talk about? Antonio Soler's keyboard sonatas, because I remember when I was studying and I was doing a thesis for history of music on Domenico Scarlatti, I discovered that Antonio Soler was a student of his in Spain. And listening to your masterful performance of the keyboard sonatas, I can actually hear the teachings, but at the same time, it's a different taste. It's really Hispanic in a way. It has its own identity. And how did you discover this composer, Antonio Soler, and do you think this is sort of an unexplored repertoire for those who want to dive in and transcriptions for our instrument? Uh -huh. Okay, um, that's a long story. 
how I discovered Solaire, <laughs> but I will make it as short as possible. Um, back in Trossing and studying there, there was the composer and pianist Jaime Padros. Nowadays, maybe not so famous anymore. And his teacher was the famous pianist Alicia de la Rocha, Spanish mm. master pianist. And through Jaime Padros, who I knew quite well, um, I got the chance to go to two or three concerts of Alicia de la Rocha, mainly in Stuttgart and Zurich. And there she played Spanish music and amongst that pieces, of course, Antonio Solea. And that's how I sort of listened first time um, to this music. And it fascinated me because as you say, you still hear something of Scarlatti in there, but there is, of course, a very personal own language. And um, then at that time, I bought in Madrid everything of his keyboard works, seven volumes, I think. And they, they were resting in my <laughs> library of scores for a long time. And then once in a while, I picked them up you know, looked at them and tried and selected sonatas which I really liked. And the recording you mentioned of the sonatas is the selection over years, which were still waiting in my closet for being published in Corona. I had so much time. So that was the <laughs> chance to, to record them. And the music itself, yeah, uh, of course, Soler was a, a monk, actually. Uh, who lived in the Escorial. And it's not clear if he was really a student of Scarlatti, but he was an admirer of Scarlatti and had mm. his cembalo sonatas um, uh, as he could read them and maybe played himself on the harpsichord or listen to them. And he was definitely influenced by Scarlatti, but found his very own language since he was much younger. And he is, I think, on the uh, step of the classic Vienna classic, just at the beginning. And mm. um, he uses, how can I say, very interesting harmonical progressions. He wrote even a tractat about harmony, uh, quite famous tractat, and also uses, unlike Scalati, very often sequences and repetitions with little differences, which dramatize his music much more than maybe Scarlatti's music. On the other hand, if you look at Scarlatti, I don't want to compare really, but the refinement of Scarlatti sonatas is uh, of course a quality for itself, which you maybe cannot find so much in Soler's sonata, but really different composers mm -hmm. and different tastes. Beautiful. Yeah, I think it's one of those repertoires that accordionists would really like to dive into let's call it unknown baroque music can really jump into the, the keyboard sonatas and explore them how many did he write he wrote 200 uh, sonatas and in addition what we also can look for are his duos for two small organs there are six concertos concertos for two small organs and also six quintets for small organ and spring quartets, so lots of repertory which can be explored. 
Beautiful. So listeners, head on to Antonio Soler on MSLP or wherever you find him <laughs> and really research because it's beautiful music and listen to, to Stefan's recording and you'll convince yourselves that it's really worth diving into it and exploring it. And a follow-up question, Stefan, what are you looking forward to this year? Now we're in February. Uh, when we are talking, your episode will be published in March, more or less. What are some of the projects that you're looking forward to this year? Well, as you know, as a musician, they are not a secret. Very well. <laughs> no, no, they are not a secret. Um, slowly, the concerts start one by one, and what's going to happen is I have a. Quite a lot of concerts with Ensemble Modern, which is a contemporary music ensemble in Germany, quite famous. Mm -hmm. And for, for instance, on Monday, I will fly to Israel, Tel Aviv, playing there. It's an Israel contemporary players, uh, works by Rebecca Saunders. In March and April, there will be one performance of the Piazzolla Concerto. First time I play the Piazzolla Concerto, Aconcagua. Uh, after that, a big opera at the Schwetzingen Festival with Ensemble Modern, which is being repeated later on in Bregenz, the big festival. Uh, what else are we doing? Um, finishing a recording of Adriana Hölzky's concertos, because she wrote actually um, a solo concerto called Highway. Mm -hmm. uh, a double concerto, uh, which is uh, called Wolke und Mond, which is a um, arrangement of her duo for cello and accordion plus string orchestra and percussion. And third, a triple concerto for uh, clarinet, soprano saxophone and large orchestra called On the Other Side. That is a project I'm working already some time on because, as you can imagine, it takes a lot of effort and energy to get all these recordings together. Oh yeah, definitely. yeah, that's about what's happening. Mm -hmm. Well, that's amazing. And, you know, listeners, uh, be on the lookout because Stefan will be busy and probably will be performing in a city next to you. So be on the lookout for his concerts. And before I let you go, um, what would be that, you know, one advice that you would give nowadays to a let's say 15, 16 year old accordionist who would really like to continue and be a professional musician? Oh, <laughs> yeah, I see. This is one of these really difficult questions. It's a tough but, one, yeah. <laughs> yeah, yeah, it's a tough one. Um, I would advise to whatever happens, never lose the love for music that will keep you going on, on your instrument. And music is so rich, music is so, has so much eternity in it. And you will always be rewarded if you stick with music, love music and try to follow the music. Beautiful. And with this beautiful words, I thank you very much for taking the time and being thank here you with us on the podcast. It was absolutely lovely and great talking to you. Thank you very much. Thank you for the great questions. Thank you for listening to this episode. 
If you really enjoy the podcast and all the episodes and all of the great guests, and you would like to hear more and get exclusive content, both from the podcast and from me, consider becoming a supporter, benefactor, or a patron on my Patreon page. Just head on to patreon.com slash Rotari or click on the link in the description of this episode and consider supporting my activity both here as a podcast and as a musician. This really helps me keep motivated and bring new content to you, dear listeners. Thank you very much and see you in the next episode.